Welcome to the Goodwin Turnback Museum podcast, where we bring you lectures, readings, and discussions that expand on the Goodwin Turnback Museum's commitment to scholarship, creativity, and inclusion. Over the next few podcasts, we will present a series of talks in conjunction with the exhibition of artist Mark Podwell's Terrazin Portfolio at the Goodwin Turnback Museum. Podwell's 42 prints were originally created for the Terrazin Ghetto Museum in the Czech Republic. The imagery addresses tragedy, injustice, faith, and survival while serving as a reminder of the extensive history of anti-Semitism which laid the groundwork for the Holocaust. Alongside Podwell's prints are historical works from the Goodwin Turnback Museum Collection and the Jewish Theological Seminary Library. On April 7th, Museum Director Amy Winter sat down with Mark Podwell to talk about the artist's career and the inspiration for his work. We, we have both all said uh, Mark is an amazingly prolific uh, artist. Um, when did you first know you were an artist? The story is told by Cynthia Ozek, a story that I told to her, that um, when I went to kindergarten, the first few days I missed class because of a, the first few days of kindergarten I missed because of a cold or some illness. And uh, then I was in class, and what I recall is that whenever the teacher would call out the roll call, my name was never called. And I mentioned it to my mother, and I said, well, maybe, you know, the kids were noisy or whatever, so they never got to me. And then, a week or so later, what I recall is I was doing a picture of a train, we were drawing, and the teacher said, um, you know, what's your name? I said, my name is Mark. She said, there's no Mark registered in this class. And so that's the story, that's what I remember. And so then I've written that, it seemed that my existence depended upon my drawing. And so that's what I remember. That's a great metaphor. <laughs> um, when we first met, I met Mark. Um, we did an exhibition uh, with uh, students curating uh, posters that we had in our collection that were all donated by alumni of the Vietnam War during the hot 60s when the protests were going on and two of Mark's posters were in there. And um, when I learned that we had a live artist uh, available, I called him up and asked him if he would be willing to say a few words um, at the opening. So that was the beginning of my um, interaction with Mark and we continued uh, after that corresponding and um, he kindly gave me some of his books. He's published 11 books uh, and illustrated 19 uh, with the likes of Ellie Wiesel and Cynthia Ozick and Harold Bloom. So uh, he's had a really uh, distinguished career. And um, so the Vietnam War posters were quite different in uh, in their content, obviously, but you know it was the '60s, and Mark was a person of the times, and um, so given that you started out there and then moved into political satire. Um, how was it that you came to start to focus on Jewish heritage and Jewish themes? The truth is bizarre. <laughs> and um, what happened was a fraternity brother of mine, Michael Shankler, 
who I gave this portfolio to Queens College in his honor. Um, Michael Shankler told me that he had a friend who owned an art gallery in Manhasset, one of these commercial framing art galleries. And he said, uh, they need some, you need someone to design a logo. So I designed the logo, and the person was, so I designed the logo. <laughs> Can you hear me? Yes? So the person who owned the gallery liked very much what I did. I think it was for free, so we liked that also. So um, he, he said, you know, do you have any work? You know, I'll reciprocate by hanging one of your works in the gallery. And I really didn't have any work because um, I never did anything to hang on a wall. For years, I would do things like when I was in junior high school, and the teacher would assign book reports, and everybody had to do a drawing for a book report. I would do drawings for the other kids for 15 cents. <laughs> and, um, and over the years, I would do different things. For, at Queens College, I would do the scenery for Follies. And uh, Eddie Simon was here. When we were in API together, he would write the music. I would do the scenery and, and so on. But I never had anything to hang on a wall. So I said, you know, what's... I don't remember if I said what's popular or whatever. He said, people like rabbis, you know, and people like Jewish things. So I did some Jewish things, which were really awful, and, um, and he sold them. And, um, and then I went on to, as I started to draw more in medical school, I started to do political drawings against the war in Vietnam and other political drawings. And these were then published in a book, my first book, Peter Fonda wrote the introduction because he was very popular. The New York Times saw the book, and I was asked to draw for the New York Times op-ed page. So it was really, it was really going to an anti-war rally with uh, medical students from NYU that got me involved in the anti-war movement, and uh, that's when I started to do political drawings. His political drawings are just, some of them are just really wonderful. Um, it, the book is called the um, rise, the decline and fall, the decline and fall of the American Empire, um, and then he went on to also do some doctored drawings. Is the name of the book, and those also are quite wry humor. Uh, and interestingly enough, and I, I mentioned this to Mark, some of his imagery is repurposed in. Uh, other ways, even in this portfolio, and it's very interesting. It's something actually that became a very contemporary strategy uh, by artists that uh, would quote themselves or quote others visually uh, in their work. And uh, the way in which Mark is able to bring that to uh, new meaning uh, is really quite ingenious. Well, ingenious is. I well, think, really, well, the, a word for you. Well, from my experience and looking at other artists, when you look at many artists, their early works, before they develop their own style, very often is copying somebody else. And for example, one of my friends, Bernie Ackerman, years ago, is very proud because he bought a, he bought a Frank Stella for $900 that looked like a bad Jackson Pollock. <laughs> now, he thought it was a real steal, but when it was appraised, it was $900 because it wasn't Frank Stella's style yet. It was a bad copy of a Jackson Pollock. And um, one time, 
I was fortunate to be friends with Saul Steinberg, the famous artist who did many New Yorker covers. And one time I was in an apartment, his apartment, and I said, well, when did you do this? He said, well, this is really a copy of an old Venetian postcard or something like that. And if you look at early Ben Sean works, they didn't look like the later Ben Sean. When he did this series on the Dreyfus case, it really didn't look like what he later did with Sacco and Vanzetti. So initially, my drawings looked very much like um, Ben Sean's. And um, then with time, as I developed what became my own style, I would then start to copy myself. <laughs> well, Picasso did it, so you're in good company. Well, Picasso said... And he copied others, obviously. Yeah, bad, Picasso said, bad, obvi bad artists copy, great artists steal. Right. <laughs> right. A famous quote from the lion. Um, how did you... Well, how, yeah, how did you come to um, your relationship special relationship. I, now, I know you now say that the shul in, in Prague, the old Alton shul in Prague is your shul, is your synagogue. How, how was it that that came about? What happened was um, someone, I was at someone's house, someone called that person, said Mark Podwell's here, he says, oh, I like his drawings from the New York Times. I can introduce him to Ellie Wiesel. And so then I started to communicate with Ellie Wiesel by mail, and he would say we should meet, and I was too in awe of Ellie to actually make an appointment. And then when the French captured Abu Daoud, who was involved with the Munich massacre, and released him only after three or four days, I did a drawing for the New York Times of the Eiffel Tower dreaming of an oil well, because the shapes were, were um, similar. And Ellie sent me a beautiful handwritten note saying, your drawing is eloquent, magnificent, we should meet. Here's my number again. So that got me to meet, that was easier for me to call Ellie with a letter like that. And so um, we spoke about collaborating. And Ellie said, let's do a book on legends about the life of Isaac. I said, great idea. Until I got home and thought there's really nothing I can draw. You know, tents and palm trees. It was really, it was not so much I was interested in. Maybe a camel. So um, I suggested to Ellie, would you be interested in doing a book on the legend of the golem? And Ellie said, what would you like? Would you like an introduction? I said, no, I want you to write the whole book. And he did. And as a result of that, I did um, 42 drawings on Prague in the 17th century that looked like etchings, very, very etchings from the 17th century with cross-hatching. And then I tell the story in a documentary film that Czech TV did where I say, for 20 years my drawings have been published in Prague and for the last 15 with my permission. <laughs> so in Prague, they really liked the drawings, they were using them. I was offered an exhibition uh, at the Jewish Museum set up through Rabbi, one of my patients who was a famous Czech photographer said, Rabbi Pates, he's, a, he's an important reform rabbi in New Jersey, he uh, would like to buy one of your golem drawings. He's the president of the Society for Czech Jewry. I said, they're not for sale. So he came and he met with me, and he told me how he's friends with all these people in Prague. I said, well, tell them I'd like to have an exhibition at the Jewish Museum. And so he did, and they were eager to do it. So I gave him one of the studies. We became very good friends. And that's how my relationship with the Jewish Museum began. In 97, I had an exhibition there 
um, Ellie uh, came and he gave the opening speech because he was coming for a conference. And what happened was one of my patients who was the wife of the COO of Philip Morris International one day comes in and says, what's new? I said, oh, the Metropolitan Museum is buying one of my works. I'm about to have an exhibition in Prague. And the woman who wasn't Jewish said, oh, I lived in Prague. The cemetery there, although it's Jewish, belongs to everybody. I said, well, if you feel that way, do you think Philip Morris would sponsor my exhibition in Prague? <laughs> and she said, absolutely, they will. And they did. And so um, Philip Morris sponsored the exhibition. And there was, a, uh, there was a press conference. And someone from Philip Morris came up to me afterwards and said, what would you like to say to the people at Philip Morris that no one else will see? I said, well, I'm so grateful to Philip Morris, I've been thinking about starting to smoke. <laughs> and one of my good friends was with me, Paul Derma, who had a great sense of humor. I said, no, 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 he does not mean that. What he means is he's been thinking of recommending smoking to his patients. <laughs> and so the relationship began with Prague, and I started to do calendars and works, and then I had another exhibition in 2012 when the Jewish Museum had its centennial. Um, they asked me to do, they said if, if I would do it, they won't do the competition across the Czech Republic. I did it for them. Then I was asked to design the textiles for the 700-year-old synagogue in Prague. And so um, I did three Torah covers, Torah curtains, all kinds of things. Then I just did, in Bruno, eight textiles for them. And so I'm in Prague about every four or five weeks. There's a seat in the synagogue with my name on it. Czech television did uh, two documentaries. And so what's great in Prague also is I walk out of the opera house one evening, and a woman comes up to me and says, um, my mother's a big fan of yours. Would you sign the opera program? I said, I'm not one of the singers. She says, we know. <laughs> so that's Prague. Well, Prague is a very magical place, and um, probably some of your your um, affinity with it would be uh, related to um, that, I would think. Well, the, the architecture in Prague is like no place else. So there's Gothic, Baroque, Renaissance, all next to each other. The city really wasn't bombed in World War II, except for the Americans dropped by accident a few bombs when they thought they were over Dresden the second day. And so you'll see some modern buildings in the middle of old buildings, and um, the city has, the city is described as Magic Prague. And this Wednesday, I'll be in Prague for an exhibition that I just did a series of prints like this, but the series is called Mozart and Prague. Of course, Mozart appreciated Prague more than Vienna or Salzburg or any place else. And he, he greatly appreciated Prague. Don Giovanni had its world premiere there. La Clemenza de Tito had its world premiere there. So in the Clementinum, which is the largest Baroque building in Europe, and where Mozart visited in 1787, there'll be an exhibition of my 27 prints alongside Mozart's original manuscripts. And the Clementinum couldn't have been more enthusiastic. They're making beer mugs with my pictures on it, in postcards, and um, they're going to hang my Metropolitan Opera posters from Mozart. So I'm really looking forward to uh, that. And I just want to add, this exhibition has been at the Jewish Museum of Miami, the Institute for Advanced Study at Princeton. It's at the Hebrew University on permanent exhibition and other institutions. This is by far the best installation that I've seen. And I really love how 
how, um, how the works from the Jewish Theological Seminary are next to uh, similar themed works. And it's really, you know, it's, it's really a dream the way uh, it's framed and mounted in the, in the, uh, the Hebrew. And it, I really thank you very, very much. Well, thank you. Um, we're delighted to be able to do it. And I'd like to thank Elizabeth Hoy, who is standing at the back, um, for her very sensitive and wonderful work on presenting this, um, installing it, and um, finding works also in our collection, uh, not only from the JTSA, but from our collection, which is quite quite sizable and quite um, rich and all, all sorts, very eclectic, but very rich in all sorts of things. Um, but I'd like to get to some of the meat of your work. Um, in my mind, the Terezin, if I'm pronouncing that right, I've heard Terezin, Terezin portfolio, um, calls to mind, of course, the famous drawings by the children who were sent to Theresienstadt um, during the, uh, the Second World War. Uh, some of you might remember the book that came out. It was very famous called I Never Saw Another Butterfly. Um, it was tremendously um, circulated, uh, lauded in its time. There's something about your work for me, and you know, it, it, you have been a satirist, political satirist, medical, you know, puns and uh, and uh, satire parodies of of many um, things in the medical community. Over uh, in your book, uh, doc upon itself, doctored uh, drawings. Yes. Um, what is what is it? Do you feel like that there was something about about a, an affinity between you and you've done many children's books, many Haggadahs, and very the the Gollum book. Many things are are uh, rated as you know up, uh, appropriate for children as well as adults. I, I it, it wasn't in mind. Um, Czech Television did a documentary film. That's a 39-minute film. You can see it on YouTube, and it's on the monitor here. It's the, the film is called All This Has Come Upon Us, and it's about the, the Terrazin works that I did in my exhibition. And it begins with them filming me in front of uh, Auschwitz. They filmed me where I grew up five blocks from here. They filmed me at the Met Museum. They filmed me at the Met, Met Opera with Peter Gelb. Elie Wiesel is in the film. And in the film, when I'm filmed in Terrazin, I'm discussing some of the children's drawings. And I, and I mentioned how uh, children's drawings um, see things uh, through their innocence. And there's a book called The Innocent Eye that was published by Princeton uh, University Press, which shows the influence of children's drawings on Paul Clay, Picasso, and so on. But when I was doing these, I, I really didn't think of, of, those, uh, of the children's drawings, but except in one instance. Um, I had done 40 works for the series because I thought 40 was a biblical number. But Czech Television and Terezin said, you have to do a work on Terezin specifically, 
we'd like you to, and also on the, Czech, the, the massacre of the Czech family, the extermination of the Czech family camp. So I did two additional works. And one of them, the work on Terezin, I thought of that poem, I never saw another butterfly, so there's the butterfly in the noose. And then on the other page, there's a pencil drawing the butterfly. So that's how the children's drawings gets into the series. And then the film ends by me standing in, the, in a Jewish cemetery in Terezin, saying how that artists try to cheat death through their art. And this is what happened in Terezin, that the artists who were imprisoned here and who died here, their art survives them. Well, it's interesting to me because, you know, like children's drawings, they can, and, and like someone, for instance, like Lewis Carroll, where you have very complex um, content presented, it's not a direct parallel, but, you know, presented in a way that is very simple, very accessible, and, and yet uh, sometimes very humorous uh, subjects. I mean, it, you know, it goes along with the, the, the old saw of Jewish humor, right? That it's, it can be very, very uh, heavy, but funny at the same time. Now, I'm not saying that these are funny, but there's a lightness, and again, I calls to mind lightness of being by uh, Havel, who was the president of, of, of well, Prague. Well, well, of the Czech Republic. La last um, September, there was an exhibition of my works in Munich. And I was just in Munich three weeks ago where they acquired this portfolio at the Bavarian State Library. But the exhibition in Munich in September was for the German edition of a book I did called The Jewish Bestiary, which now came out in Polish and German and, and uh, Czech and Italian. And so I was interviewed by their major newspaper. And the interviewer asked me about Jewish humor. And I said, well, Jewish humor is often taking something tragic and trying to do something humorous. So I tell the following joke that they published in this German newspaper. I said, there are these two Jews who set out to assassinate Hitler. And, they, and although Hitler goes a different route every day, they know what route he's going to take that day. So they're all ready to assassinate him. And he's going to pass by at 10 o'clock. And it's 10.10, 10.30, 10, 11 o'clock, and he doesn't come yet. And one Jew turns to the other one and says, gee, I hope nothing's happened to him. So that's Jewish humor. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, your work in, in the earlier days was, you know, tremendously wry and, and sometimes dark, but funny. Um, like the ta Israeli tank with a menorah projecting out from it. Well, actually, when I first did that in 82 for the op-ed page, the art director loved it, but the editor got nervous, and the last minute he killed the drawing. Seven years later, there was an article by Abba Eben, same art director, fortunately different editor. Not only did they print it, but that drawing won the New York Times the Society of Newspaper Award, which they never win. So here, it, it wins them a, an award that, that they initially weren't going to publish. It's ironic. What, it, it's sort of uh, Kabbalistically appropriate. <laughs> I don't know how. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. Um, there are other affinities as well um, that I've noted in your work um, with, um, oops, I've lost my place here. Um, 
Uh, well, let me jump to another question I was going to ask you, which was, what, what is your process? Um, for instance, you, you kind of gave us the background on how you were asked to do the Tourette's whole uh, portfolio, but do you uh, conceptualize first and then draw, or does it work in parallel? Or Well, the process is like this. I get an assignment, I know when the date is, and then I do nothing for a long time. It's like, you know, going, like being at Queens College, you know, for <laughs> examinations, exams. for exams. Yeah. So I do nothing for a long time, but I think about it. And then as the deadline approaches, I know I have to get this done. I never sit down without the idea ahead of time. And so I'll sketch it out, but then in the process, when I'm actually working on the paper, sometimes a different idea comes that's better. So for example, when I was, going, when I was drawing the butterfly over Terrazin, I decided let me draw a noose about it, around it, so that'll, that'll um, capture it and, and give many metaphors, of, uh, many layers of meaning. So I always have the idea before I sit down, but what comes out in the end isn't always the initial idea. I never just sit down at the blank paper and don't know what I'm gonna do. Well, and then what I also do is, I'll get ideas driving to work or whatever, stop at a light, hopefully, and then just draw something, and then put it somewhere, and then find it a few months later. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So that brings to, to, uh, up the idea of inspiration, where it comes from. What, what drives you, you think? Who, what is your muse? I mean, you're a doctor, and I, I like a quote from you that I read that said, as a doctor, I believe in science. As an artist, I believe in legend. Right, in legends, right. Legends. The, um, when this was exhibited in the Jewish Museum of Florida, the opening of the exhibition, which was in November, my high school history teacher came. Uh, Mr. Dobkin, who's now 90 years old. And when I was 16, I wrote a paper for him how the, how the Nazis set the stage for the extermination of the Jews of Europe. And so my, the Holocaust affecting my work is probably related to the fact that when my mother came to the United States in 1928, when she was eight years old, and she came from Dubrova, Poland, where I've just been invited by the mayor of that town to speak in, um, on a day about Jews later in May. Um, she came with two brothers, but the third brother was not a, given a visa because uh, it was said that he had an eye disease, trachoma, and they wouldn't let him into the United States. And the family tried very hard to get him into the US. They couldn't, and he died in Treblinka. When my grandmother learned that he died in Treblinka, uh, she became severely depressed, was hospitalized in Creedmoor the uh, psychiatric hospital, spent 18 years there till she died. And I saw her when I was maybe eight years old through the fence, because my mother would visit her mother every Wednesday. And then the other, I, I write that the closest I ever was to her was when I carried her, co her coffin when I was 18 or 19 years old. So that, that certainly must have affected me in thinking about the Holocaust. When I grew up, I knew nothing about Judaism until the, the age of 12 was maybe the first time I was in a synagogue for a cousin's bar mitzvah. 
And then at 12, I was sent to a Jewish camp, Sedgwin camps, where I knew nothing. And I would go there, and Friday evening, they'd be singing all these songs, and they'd say prayers, and at the end of the meal, they'd sing the Birkat HaMazon for 10 minutes, and I knew nothing, but I was very good at mouthing and memorizing. And so by the end of the summer, I even conducted one of the services. I told my, I told my parents that I, my bar mitzvah, which was then going to be in nine months, I didn't want to do what they wanted to do, buy me a record and have a tutor. I wanted to go to a real Hebrew school. So I went to the um, opening of the Electchester Jewish Center Hebrew School, was the first bar mitzvah, went to services every Saturday, um, became very interested in the Jewish religion. But when interviewed for one of these films and I'm asked about my religion um, affiliation, I say I'm a non-observant Orthodox Jew. And I clarify it by saying, I like everything done the orthodox way, as long as someone else is doing it for me. <laughs> and so that's what's happened. But also, I gave a talk, Kafka, Kafka who's synonymous with Prague, once wrote that, drawing is, that writing is a form of prayer. So I gave a lecture at the Jewish Museum, drawing is a form of prayer, quoting different people and so on. And um, so, when they dedicated the textiles in the old new synagogue, I began by mentioning that to me, drawing is a form of prayer. And then I turned to the chief rabbi and I said, but Rabbi Sedon, let me assure you, during services, I'm never drawing. I might not be praying, but I'm not drawing. I think you're getting an idea of Mark's sense of humor from this, which is very, very understated at times. <laughs> and dry, but um, I find amazingly funny. Um, I think another affinity that you have, and this makes sense also with your, you know, huge uh, reservoir of uh, uh, knowledge about not just uh, Judaism now, but uh, about medicine and classical literature and which you, you draw on so many different sources. Um, but I think the, a big affinity of your work is with poetry and... Well, not necessarily poetry, but the thing is... Poetic. Yeah, I'm Poetics. Not, yeah, I'm, I'm interested in narrative art. And um, I'm not just doing things for decoration, although sometimes things work out that are, you know, are, are pretty. But I'm interested in telling stories. And so I've said that what, I, what I'm interested in doing is, is visually retelling the stories of my heritage. And so I'm interested in Kabbalah. I'm interested in le primarily legends, legends from the Talmud. Years ago, my children's publisher asked me to do a children's book with Elie Wiesel. Can you get Elie Wiesel to do a children's book? I said, I'll ask him. So I asked Elie if he'd do a children's book, King Solomon and His Magic Ring. And so he said yes, he wrote it. It won the Silver Medal from the Society of Illustrators for the best illustrated children's book of the year. And, um, and so I really, I like the legends very much, particularly the humor in the legends. Um, for example, uh, in, in my book, Jerusalem Sky, which retells legends from Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, uh, I found a legend that said, 
that while King Solomon was the king, the moon, oh, I, I suggested this to Ellie for King Solomon and his magic ring, that when, when Solomon was the king, the moon was always full every night. So the copy editor, when she was reading this, said, well, you know, if the Jewish year and month is based on the cycles of the moon, what did they do, <laughs> what did they do with the calendar if every night the moon was full? So Ellie said, um, and it was miraculous how they were able to observe the calendar. Hmm. <laughs> um, well, I think also the fact that, you know, you've used the Psalms here, which of course are... Yeah, I'd like to... When I set out to do this, uh, and I decided I wanted to do a history of Jewish persecutions that would lead, lay the groundwork for the Holocaust, I was, and, and eventually I decided what kind of paper, what color paper, that I would fold it in the center to make it look like a book. And on the right side, I would take biblical verses. And I was going to take verses from Lamentations, Jeremiah, Isaiah. But the problem with those books, and it's the same problem in a verse that's on the wall in the hidden synagogue in Terezin, which the, this film also begins with, is that in Jeremiah and these biblical books, the destruction of the temple is based on the sins of the Jews. They didn't observe all the letters of the Torah, they didn't do this, they didn't do that. And then there are certain rabbis who'll say, well, the Holocaust happened because the Jews weren't kosher enough and things like that, which is horrible. And so I didn't want to use texts that blamed Jewish tragedies on the Jews themselves. So I looked instead of Jeremiah and Isaiah and so on, I looked at the book of uh, Psalms, Tehillim, and it's been written that whatever is in the book of Psalms is timeless, and you can find everything in the book of Psalms. Not only can you find everything in the book of Psalms, but the Spanish Inquisition's motto was from the book of Psalms. The, um, and so I started to look through the book of Psalms, all the art was done, and I found a verse from the book of Psalms that it would accompany each work that was as if I was doing the drawing to accompany that verse. So for example, one of the most popular drawings here is of the Spanish galleon with the Torahs. It's up at the top with of the, the stairs. Um, for the expulsion the in 1492. Floor. And the verse is, your laws are songs to me no matter where I live. And it was perfect for Spanish galleon with the Torah. And some of the other ones also were just really perfect. Well, the Psalms are wonderful, uh, wonderful texts and poems, really, songs. Um, Pardon? Speak up. Okay. The, the Psalms are really wonderful texts and really, you know, King David, at least as he is credited, credited and represented, is uh, a poet. And I do think you, there are, you know, tremendous poetics in your art that it is not simply, you know, um, s satirical or... Uh, it's not, it, it, it balances things, again, back to the idea of tragedy and, and lightness at the same time. One of the ways I started to get away from satire when I was doing a lot of political drawings, I came across a quote that said, satire is what closes on Saturday night. <laughs> and so, um, maybe think about what I was doing. Uh-huh. Well, um, I have written uh, about a f 
one of the, I mean, I love the picture, as I said, it's at the top of the stairs of the Spanish um, galleon um, carrying the Torah. And um, this brings, it, it's not satirical, but like satire, a, a tradition in satire called uh, charge, which in French means it's charged, it's full. Um, the Torah dominates the prow. It's, it's the thing that you know, brings, brings us everywhere, uh, accompanies us, and, and uh, outweighs uh, or has such, such weight of tradition. It's really a wonderful combination of uh, what apparently could be a very um, you know, fun kind of drawing. And, and, and actually, a, a wonderful quote from the Atlantic magazine that um, I have mentioned before in the press release um, said, you know, something to the effect of, you know, Mark Podwall's work is deceptively abstract and colorful. And he, they didn't use the word playful, but I do think that there's that element. And, um, and yet, at the same time, it's just as powerful in depicting justice or the call for justice. Also, in terms of, as I'm working, and trying to get the right idea. Those who know me know that I rarely smile. And, um, but when I come across the right idea, I give my, you know, there's a little smile and I know this is the right thing to draw. Right. Well, some, some of the things are just, just fantastic. And I, um, by the way, um, Mark is going to have, I, I'll call it a, a compendium of his work published, it's coming out in August. We have, for those of you who are interested, it's nice because it will cover, uh, you know, an arc of his, of his career. Um, there are cards in the back if anyone is interested in acquiring one. They've even got, a, this is all new to me too, a barcode you can scan to uh, acquire it. Let me tell you how this book came about. I've done many, many books. I've done my own books. I've illustrated books with Ellie Wiesel and Harold Bloom, Francine Prose. And I've always wanted, you know, the way artists would like a monograph published on their work, but I never thought that I would see one in my lifetime. And then, or any time. And then um, one of my patients, who was a very famous French photographer, comes in for a visit about a year ago and says, um, there's a 300-page book of my work now being published by Glitterati, which is a very good art and photography publisher. And he says, I'm going to show your work to my publisher, and she will publish a book of your work. And I'm thinking, yeah, sure. And that's what happened. Um, she came to an exhibition that I did. She said, has there been a monograph on you? I said, no. She says, well, I'm publishing it. So it'll be a 374-page book with 350 drawings and paintings and about 20 photos of my textiles with essays by Elie Wiesel, Cynthia Ozick, and Professor Elisheva Kalbach, who's the professor at, um, she's at Columbia, she was here. She's brilliant. And the book is, um, I've been going over the book the last two, three weeks because there's, there's all proofreading errors, wrong dates, things like that. And uh, I'll tell you something funny that relates to Queens College. Um, to prepare for this book, I had to find the dates, the sizes, all kinds of things. And, and sometimes I would make up the title on the spur of the moment and not remember you know, what the title is. Then later find the catalog, here's really the title, and so on. So I'm going through files and files, 
and I find a letter from the former president of Queens College. Scott? No, Shirley. Shirley. And it says, uh, Dear Mark Podwell, I'm sorry I wasn't able to meet you at the lunch at Bernie and, and Ruth Madoff's. <laughs> <laughs> I hope we can meet sometime in the future. <laughs> I was, I was <laughs> yeah, well, I think we all want to put that behind us somehow. <laughs> oh, Lordy. Um, yeah. You know what you find when you look through your papers. That's That's right. I, I have boxes and boxes that I haven't unpacked for 20 years. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think that um, this, this is just a wonderful experience, and uh, I'm just going to say a few words, but before I do, about, about why I wanted to do this show besides the obvious, that it's so worthy and so, the work is so great. And of course, it's also about the times we're in now. And I, I just felt it was really important. I, I mean, I, I certainly did not know the history of all of these incidents throughout history uh, that, uh, you know, but I have felt that um, it's it's a very important. I didn't even know that I was Jewish till I came to New York. <laughs> I mean, I shouldn't say I didn't know, but um. I first learned I was Jewish. I was in um, the first grade. I come home and I say to my mother, "There are only three kids in school today." She says, "Oh yeah, it's a Jewish holiday." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, for all of us, whether we're Jewish or otherwise, it's important to have this, this um, recounted, this, these incidents, these histories. And I think it's really important for students as well, um, given the kinds of political things that are going on now, uh, and also the denials of the Holocaust and, and so forth. Um, I just think that uh, most people, uh, you know, history has died. I hope it's coming back. Uh, Let me interrupt. Uh, sure. Um, when, in, in view of that, um, when I, I told, when I spoke in Munich three weeks ago, when the Bavarian State Library acquired the portfolio, and I didn't know what I was going to say a day before I, I thought of what I was going to say, and I spoke about this. When these works were exhibited in London at the Czech Embassy, and there was a question and answer afterwards, a young girl said to me, um, what do you think about the quote that it's impossible to write poetry after Auschwitz? And when she said that, I thought, you know, basically are you saying it's worthless, everything that I'm, I'm doing here? So I was a bit offended and responded, and it turns out she had, I think, just found out how she was Jewish, and was responding to her Jewishness and so on. So I thought about that, and so what I said in Munich was, in thinking further about the quote, it's impossible to write poetry after Auschwitz, when the actual quote by Adorno was, it's barbaric, it's barbaric to write poetry after Auschwitz, I thought, I'd like to paraphrase it, it's impossible to be anti-Semitic after Auschwitz. And in thinking about that, how crazy the world has become where anti-Semitism is on the rise, not only throughout Europe, but on American campuses, where, where, where the Palestinian students just take the, you know, 
the spotlight and, and a Jewish speaker will come, a former ambassador from Israel to the United States, they'll shout him out so he can't speak. They'll do all of these things, how, uh, how the Israelis are oppressing the Palestinians and so on. And so there's been more and more anti-Semitism on American campuses. And so I'm very grateful that some of the major institutions throughout the United States, whether it's Stanford, Berkeley, Harvard, Yale, Columbia, Yale has these on its website, um, have responded and are trying to do things with this portfolio. Uh, because the problem is, much of the anti-Semitism that you see on American campuses is based on complete ignorance. Well, yeah, and I, I don't think, I, I'm very pleased to say that um, this campus has a wonderful inter-religious, ecumenical, and very warm feeling. I, I'm, and I'm very glad of that. And on that count, I want to say that one of the objectives of this um, exhibition was also to reach beyond the injustices that had been, have been done to the Jewish people to uh, speak to the Syrian conflict uh, and, and the conflict that's going on now as well. And I think, you know, the, one, there was a wonderful article in Tablet Magazine about Jewish identity and what that means. And what it means, um, according to this writer, is that we have a, even Jewish young people on campus themselves have, have become um, active in the uh, boycott, divest, sanction movement. Um, but um, I think it is important that something like this can reach out beyond the um, specific culture uh, and religious um, thing of, of Judaism to include people who have been and are suffering uh, as a result of the conflicts that are going on in the Middle East. And um, so that was another issue that I wanted to address in this um, in this project. And we are going to have a program uh, coming up. Uh, most of you received the um, invitation. And um, we have a scholar in residence uh, from a group called Scholars at Risk that is national. It's probably international, too. I don't know as much about it as um, Elizabeth, um, who uh, contacted them, Elizabeth Ann Brita, who contacted them, and so she will be speaking about her experience as a refugee and um, the, the current conflict, as well as um, having student responses to these um, works, artworks. So I invite you all to come and join us for additional programs. I thank Mark heartily for a wonderful interview. The Goodwin Turnbrook Museum would like to thank Mark Podwell and Amy Winter. This exhibition and event was made possible with generous support from the Queens College Center for Jewish Studies and Dr. Rosalind Gold and family in memory of Simon Gold. Additional support was provided by the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs, the Jewish Theological Seminary Library, 
the Weizerman Jewish Studies Center at Baruch College, the Milton and Sally Avery Arts Foundation, the Queens College Center for Ethnic, Racial, and Religious Understanding, the Scholars at Risk Network at NYU, the Kupferberg Center for the Arts, and the Friends of the Goodwin Turnbeck Museum. To hear about upcoming events at the Goodwin Turnbeck Museum, visit gtmuseum.org. Follow us on Twitter at Goodwin Turnbeck. Find us on Facebook. And if you haven't already, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and leave us a review. This podcast is a production of the Goodwin Turnbeck Museum. It was created by Joseph Pastner and Shah Khan, and the music was composed by Federico Zegera. All students at Queens College, CUNY.